This version of the Room Now podcast is dedicated to highlights from ULAR 2022. Herein, you will hear reports and perspectives from the Room Now faculty and key opinion leaders in rheumatology. Enjoy. This is Dr. Katherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm at ULAR 2022 in my living room from Dallas. So I wanna share with you this poster. It is fabulous. It's actually poster number 0086, and it's looking at real world patient preferences in lupus patients who are willing to undergo risk in order to get the treatment outcomes that they desire. So what this study did was they took 342 patients with lupus and they gave them hypothetical situations. There were more than 3,400 observations that they obtained. And they wanted to know whether or not patients um, place greater value on symptom control or whether they place greater value on medication side effects like infection. And what was interesting was the way that patients rated as having greater values, which is actually symptomatic improvement. They rated the most important issue to them is actually controlling their joint pain, followed by controlling their rashes, particularly the itchy rashes, and then also non-joint body pain and fatigue. Now, what's interesting is that reducing risk for infection, that actually came in last as in terms of importance and treatment outcomes. So this is an interesting study because there's a disconnect between what patients want versus what physicians want. Patients were willing to tolerate risk of side effects in order to achieve improvement in their outcomes. So this is Dr. Katherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Hi, this is Dr. Katherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm at ULAR 2022 in my living room in Dallas. So I wanna share with you this poster 0365. It's looking at hematologic relapses in patients with severe disease. Um, it's looking at the Atticon lupus cohort, A-T-T-I-K-O-N lupus tope cohort. So that's about 800 patients. About 40% of them had severe hematologic, sorry, John. <laughs> This is Dr. Katherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm at ULAR 2022 from my living room here in Dallas. So I want to share with you this poster. It's poster 0365. And it's looking at severe hematologic relapses in patients with lupus. And this is from the Atticon lupus cohort of 800 patients. They found that about 40% of these patients have hematologic manifestations, of which 13% had really severe disease. And where definition of severe disease is having thrombotic angiopathy, platelets of less than 30,000, hemolytic anemia, where the hemoglobin is less than eight, or macrophage activation syndrome. So these are pretty severe hematologic demand right in your face kind of manifestations of lupus. And what they found were that about a third of these patients had hematologic issues that preceded the lupus diagnosis. Now these patients were pretty responsive to receiving rituximab or cyclophosphamide, but there were relapses. Um, about 50% of patients will relapse, but these relapses will respond to glucocorticoids, IVIG and plasma exchange. So there were no deaths though. So that's um, something to consider. Uh, if your patient has a severe hematologic manifestation, uh, continue to monitor them very, very closely. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Yus Yusuf. Uh, I am uh, from Leeds. 
Uh, I'm uh, reporting uh, for Room Now uh, from Copenhagen, uh, Denmark for EULA 2022. Uh, today is the first day of uh, EULA conference. Uh, there have been many. Uh, it's nice to see uh, you know, uh, people uh, and also to connect with them uh, in a face-to-face -face, uh, environment. As uh, last year, we only managed to do um, just uh, online conference only. Um, so uh, without further ado, uh, today I would like to um, discuss about uh, an interesting uh, abstract. Um, so the abstract is a, a poster, uh, poster 0086 uh, Pare. Um, so this uh, is a poster uh, about uh, the patient uh, perspective. So this patient have a, a diagnosis of lupus uh, erythematosus. Uh, as we all know, uh, lupus uh, is heterogeneous in clinical features. So people have uh, different, different symptoms. So in this study, so it is a, a survey uh, uh, of over 300 patients. Um, they wanting to find out uh, what symptoms, uh, if you do make uh, them feel better, are most important to them so that we can target this trend to improve their quality of life. So the symptoms that they were um, investigating uh, were um, the uh, inflammatory uh, joint pain. Um, so they have uh, rash or itching symptoms. Uh, they have non-joint pain, uh, fatigue, uh, and also uh, etc. Um, so uh, in the survey, um, the, the top three symptoms that actually mattered most uh, to lupus patients were, um, according to uh, the order, uh, is improvement in uh, joint pain, uh, followed by improvement in skin rash or itching symptoms, uh, non-joint pain, and the least uh, important uh, to the patients was um, a reduction uh, in terms of infection risk. Um, the study also uh, looked into um, trying to find out uh, whether uh, how um, the patients uh, would consider um, you know, up to what level um, increment or intensity of the treatment would be acceptable for the patients. Um, so the interesting bit is a patient uh, were really uh, distraught with uh, itching and in the skin symptoms. They were even, um, uh, the, the trade-off is about 74% uh, in the increment of the you know, steroid or immunosuppressant that they think is acceptable as long as these you know, symptoms uh, are treated. Um, so I think this is uh, a uh, really important uh, message, particularly from patient perspective, uh, because currently um, we do have uh, established outcome measures uh, and, and, and it's important to account that these symptoms are where the patient perceive are really important if you can try to make uh, you know, them, them, them feel better. Um, so, so yeah, so that's the um, abstract that I found uh, interesting, particularly from patient perspective. Um, so follow us uh, on uh, Room Now uh, for uh, more coverage uh, in the, uh, pertaining to uh, this uh, EULA. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for ULAR 2022 with Room Now. So I am very excited to share with you the poster 0186. So this is the two-year data on Aurora 2, and it's the result of 
long-term use of vocalosporin for lupus nephritis. So if you remember, Aurora 1 is a one-year study, Aurora 2 is a two-year study after that. So it's really three years of exposure. So there were 216 patients. Um, they received vocalosporin 27.3 milligrams twice a day with mycophenolate versus mycophenolate as a control. And when you compare the two groups, the data showed that there was no unexpected adverse events. And actually the rate of adverse events decreased over time, which is to be expected because the longer a patient stays on a drug, then the longer they're gonna stay on the drug. Those who have a lot of side effects will drop out early. Now, what's interesting was they did find that COVID infections did occur um, in these patients. There were 12 in the control group and seven in the vocalosporin group. There were four deaths in the control arm, but no deaths with the vocalosporin arm. The glomerular filtration rate, serum creatinine, remained stable throughout the study, and the reduction in the urinary protein creatinine ratio actually was sustained even after one year of use. So this is reassuring data that you could continue vocalosporin with mycophenolate for lupus nephritis for more than two years. Dr. Catherine Dow reporting, follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm at ULAR 2022 from my living room here in Dallas. So I wanna share with you this poster. It's poster 0365. And it's looking at severe hematologic relapses in patients with lupus. And this is from the Atticon lupus cohort of 800 patients. They found that about 40% of these patients have hematologic manifestations, of which 13% had really severe disease. And where definition of severe disease is having thrombotic angiopathy, platelets of less than 30,000, hemolytic anemia where the hemoglobin is less than eight, or macrophage activation syndrome. So these are pretty severe hematologic demand right in your face kind of manifestations of lupus. And what they found were that about a third of these patients had hematologic issues that preceded the lupus diagnosis. Now these patients were pretty responsive to receiving rituximab or cyclophosphamide, but there were relapses. Um, about 50% of patients will relapse, but these relapses will respond to glucocorticoids, IVIG and plasma exchange. So there were no deaths though. So that's um, something to consider. Uh, if your patient has a severe hematologic manifestation, uh, continue to monitor them very, very closely. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Hello from ULAR2022. This is Dr. Eric Dine uh, reporting with Room Now. I'm coming at you from New Jersey, virtually uh, tuning in to Copenhagen for uh, this wonderful conference thus far. Uh, I'm gonna chat with you about one presentation that uh, I thought was uh, interesting and clinically relevant, which was oral presentation 0139, which was looking at sexual dysfunction in our patients. Uh, do you talk to your patients with RA and, and psoriatic arthritis about sexual function? My guess is probably not as much as they are thinking about it. Um, this is something that uh, is on the minds of many patients and um, we often are not screening for or asking about. Um, this was a study coming from Spain, looking at autoimmune patients versus healthy controls. Uh, uh, and they analyzed the results of a CSFQ14 questionnaire. Um, so the CSFQ14 is a, um, is a questionnaire that assesses four domains of sexual function. It assesses pleasure, uh, desire, arousal, and orgasm and, and association of pain with orgasm. Um, there are uh, obviously different questions for both men and women that can both use uh, the questionnaire uh, and assess sexual function. 
there were 188 uh, individuals that participated in the trial, um, 72 with psoriatic arthritis and 27 with rheumatoid arthritis. And these patients were compared against healthy controls. What they found was a very high degree of sexual dysfunction in our patient populations. 30% of patients with psoriatic arthritis and 48%, nearly half of the patients with rheumatoid arthritis. This compared to just 5% in the control group. Um, the odds ratio uh, for this is 8.7 for psoriatic arthritis and 10 times for patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, other risk factors included age, employment status, income level. Um, it was worth noting there's a very high rate of depression in the group, more than 70%. Uh, and I, I would expect this to play a role, but uh, they reported that this was not found to be a statistically significant risk factor, but I think definitely something worth paying attention to. Uh, another um, topic of conversation from the Q&A session of this talk uh, was one of the questionnaires brought up uh, a recommendation about looking further into uh, steroid therapy in these patients, as that's something that can definitely uh, impact uh, sexual function. So I'm interested about this uh, study in, in more detail. I hope there's some more information to come with the eventual paper, um, but I think it's highly relevant. I think it's something that um, if we're not talking to our patients about, I think it's something that, that definitely um, they're thinking about, they would be interested in learning more about. Um, I, I'm curious to see a little bit more about these four domains. They reported that um, all four domains were impaired in autoimmune disease, um, but I, I'm curious to see some more of the data and see, is it more of a, a desire libido issue or is it more of a, a function issue, uh, as well as some of the differences with, with men and women. Um, but I think this is something that shows quite a marked difference between our autoimmune patients and the general population. Um, so. I, very, um, very good um, uh, presentation here and um, looking forward to more to come throughout ULAR 2022. Check out Room Now for uh, lots more coverage. Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting from Dallas. I am day two of ULAR and I am reporting for Room Now. So I wanted to share with you a few posters about DMARS biologics, prednisone and pregnancy. I think this is such an important topic. And if you're as interested as I am, um, then you can call yourself a reproductive rheumatologist. So let's talk about the first poster. This is poster 1405. And this poster is titled less than 50% of females with chronic rheumatic inflammatory diseases actually continue a DMAR during pregnancy. So this is a retrospective cohort study of women who had chronic inflammatory rheumatic diseases. And it's actually derived from the French healthcare database. So this covers about 98% of the French population. And there were over 11,000 patients and they had a singleton pregnancy during the 10 year study period, which is a lot of babies. So the data showed that during pregnancy, 42% of these women were not on any kind of DMARD or steroids. And then 32% of them were actually on conventional synthetic DMARDs and 25% on a biologic. What's interesting was that 30% of them had exposure to a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, an NSAID, during the first trimester. Um, now, that number did drop in the second and third trimester to 6 and 2%, and exposure to corticosteroids was pretty common, occurring in about a third of all pregnancies, um, even through the third trimester. Now, this is really alarming because... Um, we like to minimize steroids, obviously, because of all the risks that it can pose during pregnancy, like gestational diabetes, infection. Um, there's been some suggestion and possibility of cleft pal palate malformation. 
So it's also unclear whether or not these patients were on steroids because they declined to be on a DMARD, if their disease was already doing well, or if the treating physician are not aware of pregnancy-compatible DMARDs. Needless to say, half of the prescriptions filled for steroids were more than 10 milligrams. So that's actually a pretty significant amount of steroids. So following that up um, is poster 0696. Does prednisone use during pregnancy induce insulin resistance in offsprings? So that is a big question because we prescribe steroids. Sometimes these women have to have five milligrams a day of steroids, but what happens to the baby? And to the baby, not just as a baby, but the baby as a child. So this study sought to answer that question. They wanted to know whether or not in utero exposure to steroids can actually impact insulin resistance into early childhood. So this is a Netherlands study looking um, at about 103 children. Now their mothers had participated in a prospective rheumatoid arthritis pregnancy study. 42 of these children had an in utero exposure to prednisone, 61 were not exposed. And so the children after they were born were assessed for insulin resistance. And this was measured through the homeostasis model of assessment insulin resistant or HOMA IR. They also measured serum adiponectin, lipid levels, and they also corrected for body fat distribution. So the good news here is that the authors really didn't find any difference um, between the HOMA IR adiponectin level body fat distribution or lipids between exposed groups or non-exposed groups through seven years of age. So if you do have to have a patient who needs to have steroids during the entire pregnancy, at least it's reassuring that it's not affecting the baby as much. Um, but even so, if there is an alternative to steroids, I really think that you should try to have the patient switch to a DMARD. And then the last study I wanna emphasize is um, oral presentation 0130. Now, this is a very interesting study because, you know, we always said that sertolizumab, it's really safe in pregnancy because it doesn't cross the placenta. Well, the study wants to see, well, should you really switch TNF inhibitors during pregnancy? And so um, they went ahead and looked um, and actually, it's a pretty large number. Dr. Leah Flatman presented this data, 26,000 offsprings, right? And they, she, what she did was she studied um, a comparison between high placental transfer TNF inhibitors versus low placental transfer TNF inhibitors. And she found really at the end, no difference in serious infectious events in childhood. Now, obviously, um, what was not looked at is like vaccination right after birth, because there are some, some countries that still give the baby BCG um, right at birth. So we're not quite sure whether or not that might impact um, the baby's ability to um, not have disseminated uh, bacillus. So that's my take on pregnancy. I hope you're having a great day. This is Dr. Kat Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dow, day two of ULAR 2022. I'm reporting for Room Now. And I wanted to share with you a couple of abstracts that had been presented. Um, there's a whole reproductive session that I thought was amazing. And really, I, I had hoped that a lot of people would have attended it. Um, but if you didn't, the first one is poster 0705. 
Um, the title of it is Dilemma Belimumab Therapy Discontinuation During Pregnancy Results of a Retrospective Study in UDRA Vigilance. So if you don't know what UDRA Vigilance is, it's basically the European version of Otis um, in America. So that's where they collect all the data about babies um, and also the medications and try to figure out if, if any of the medicines can potentially cause harm. So the background here is that they wanted to look at patients with lupus, um, lupus nephritis, specifically with belimumab exposure. And currently, we're not quite sure whether or not belimumab is safe in pregnancy. The general consensus is that it is safe. Uh, so the UDRA vigilance database sought to evaluate this. So there were 47 pregnancies studied, 37 patients actually stopped belimumab in the first trimester. That's called group A. And then 10 patients continued their medication beyond the first trimester. And so what they did was they compared the two groups, the groups that stopped it and the groups that didn't. And the authors found really not much difference in fetal deaths, uh, gestational age at birth between the two groups. They really uh, didn't see like any issues with um, uh, continuing the belimumab. But what was interesting was that in the group that had stopped the medicine in the first trimester, there might be numerically higher numbers of congenital malformation, preterm births, and low birth weights, though it's not statistically significant. So based on this study, the authors concluded that continuation of belimumab might actually be preferable in patients already on treatment. Now that's in contrast to a different study which is uh, oral presentation poster 0129. Again, the UDRA vigilance um, database. What they did was they compared belimumab use with sertralizumab. In fact, they compared all non-TNF biologics with sertralizumab because sertralizumab is considered the gold standard. It's the one TNF inhibitor biologic that actually is so large that it doesn't really cross the placenta. And so they did find that there might be a slight um, increase in the number of congenital malformations with belimumab, but really there was no like consistent pattern. So they think it's just probably noise. But what was interesting in this one study though, was that they found three cases of corpus callosum agenesis. And so this is where um, the, the bridge between the two hemispheres of the brain didn't really develop well. And this was with vandalizumab, or you might know it with its brand name, Intivio. And so the three cases, two of them were from Crohn's patients, one from ulcerative colitis. And not only that, with the corpus callosum agenesis, uh, there were two other uh, CNS malformations associated with it. So possibly a signal, uh, we're not quite sure, but something to pay attention to, particularly if you have any uh, patients with inflammatory bowel disease who might be on uh, vendalizumab and who is of childbearing age. So that's Dr. Catherine Dow here reporting. Uh, thank you for listening. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Professor Peter Nash, School of Medicine, Griffith University, beautiful downtown Brisbane in Australia at ULA Copenhagen 2022 reporting for Room Now. So there's been a number of abstracts about Ducravacitinib, difficult name, TIC2 inhibitor. Uh, there's a safety paper presented by Roy Fleischmann and a number of interesting differences from the other JAKs. This was a laboratory abnormality paper 
didn't get lymphopenia, did get some minor increase in CPK, no anemia suggesting that JAK2 is not inhibited when you push the dose in the dose ranging study. So that looks safe. Interestingly, a nice paper from Eric Moran that will be presented tomorrow, but we've had a good look at the abstract, talks about ducravacitinib in lupus. Baricitinib had a failed study. Ducravacitinib looks like it's a positive study, SRI4 uh, and a number of the other outcome measures. So we might have a new treatment modality moving forward, not only psoriasis, not only psoriatic arthritis, but also an SLE. Look forward to uh, watch this space. Back to you, Jack. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Yus Yusuf. Uh, I am from Leeds. Uh, I'm reporting uh, for Room Now uh, at this year's EULA 2022 conference at Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, today, uh, I am delighted uh, to be uh, joined uh, by uh, Dr. Lucy Carter, uh, also from Leeds. Um, so, Lucy today uh, presented uh, her abstract uh, OP. 0246 uh, to six for which uh, she won uh, the best uh, the, the prestigious best abstract award uh, in basic science at this year's conference hi lucy hi hi um uh, would you like to uh, um just uh, describe some uh, the background of uh, your student studies yeah of course thank you so um the premise of our work was to study the transition between ana positivity to a, a classifiable autoimmune connective tissue disease such as lupus we consider ana positivity to be an at-risk state for diseases such as lupus but it's only a small proportion of people who are ANA positive who ultimately display disease so we wanted to understand some more of those mechanisms. Uh, great um, and can you please uh, describe a little bit of your methods uh, and also summarize your main findings? Of course so um, for this study we recruited individuals who were referred to rheumatology services with ANA positivity and some low-grade symptomatology that was of concern to their primary care physician, um, but not meeting any classification or diagnostic criteria for SLE. Um, they provided us blood samples from which we isolated PBMCs at their baseline visit and uh, performed bulk RNA sequencing on those samples. Now, those patients were followed up for 12 months and their progression or non-progression to lupus was uh, defined at 12 months and adjudicated. So we were able to compare the transcriptional signatures um, in progressors and non-progressors to look for uh, trends which were related to their, their disease state. I used the WGCNA uh, analysis on the RNA sequencing data, uh, and that has revealed to me two, uh, three, sorry, um, key modules which were related to progression from ANA positivity to uh, lupus, one of which was predictive of progression and two of which was actually protective for progression. So I think it's really interesting because you're using a novel uh, technique uh, and also you found not just predictive but also some modules actually protective. So I think this is really important to carry forward. So just uh, the last bit is um, what would be the clinical implication and what's your future plan? Thank you. So um, the, the implications is really trying to find, understand the pathogenesis of this very early stage of evolving connective tissue diseases with the, the hope that we can have interceptive therapies that can prevent fulminant disease developing. That's the global ambition. But in the short term, we've got gene targets from these modules, which are uh, targets for uh, validation studies in the first instance. Fantastic. So I hope you know, all, all goes well. Uh, so uh, thank you uh, for your attention. Uh, and uh, if you would like to have more content, uh, follow us on uh, Twitter, YouTube, uh, and also the website. Okay. Bye-bye.